North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome to another episode of the Impossible State Podcast. Uh, this is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President and Career Chair at CSIS, Professor at Georgetown University. And we're very excited today to have with us the author of a brand new book about the sister, North Korea's Kim Yo-jung, the most dangerous woman in the world, uh, written by a good friend and colleague, Song Yun Lee. Uh, let me properly introduce Song Yun. Song Yun is a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars here in Washington, D.C. Uh, formerly, he was the Kim Gu Korea Foundation Professor of Korean Studies and Assistant Professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He's written on the politics of the Korean Peninsula for numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. He's testified as an expert witness at Congress. Um, on, on North Korea and has advised senior leaders uh, of both the U.S. and the Korean governments. He received his Ph.D. at the Fletcher School from Tufts and his M.A. as well from the Fletcher School and his B.A. from New College. So, sung really it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. I'm honored to be on your program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, and of course we're here to discuss this amazing new book that you've written called The Sister, North Korea's Kim Yo-jung, the most dangerous woman in the world. And there you see the cover. For our, our viewers and listeners, you see the cover. Um, uh, this is, I, th I think it's safe to say, the only book out there right now that focuses specifically on uh, the sister, Kim Yo-jong. Yes. Yes. So um, to get us started, I mean, so it's a great cover. Uh, it's, I, I like that it's very mysterious. Uh, I don't know if you chose it or if your publisher chose it. I have no hand it. in that. Uh -huh. uh, I'm grateful to my publisher, the designers. Uh, at Public Affairs for coming up with that. Yes, it's a very it's arresting. Nice, I think. Yes, it, it is. It's a very, very nice cover. Um, um, but I think maybe we should start by with for our, I think often for our viewers and listeners, when we bring an author on, it's interesting to hear sort of what motivated you to write this book. How did you come about uh, deciding to write this book about the sister? Sure. Well, I first became interested in the identity of a grieving young woman wearing the traditional black hanbok, the Korean costume, at the wake of Kim Jong-il upon his death in December 2011. She was weeping. She, her cheeks seemed hollow, like really just sunk deep in, visibly in pain and sorrow. And she stood right behind her brother. Mm -hmm. So I guessed it must be, she must be one family member, probably his sister. So that was the, what ignited my sort of morbid uh, fascination with Kim Jong-un's sister. But as we know, as many of our viewers know, she made quite a splash, a major international debut, if you will, by visiting South Korea on the occasion of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics in South Korea in February 2018. 
All she did was show up to meetings, smile a little, at times scowl a little, and you know, shake hands and you know, meet with people, eat a little, drink a little. Yet she seemed to mesmerize many South Koreans, both folks in government and ordinary the public as well. And media coverage was quite fawning on her um, decorum, her makeup, her fashion, and so on, how chaste, how immaculate her taste in fashion was. No earrings, no necklace, and so on. Light um, makeup, but the heaviest we've seen yet, intoned one TV observer, attesting to or claiming, therefore, she must take this mission, this visit to South Korea very seriously. There was all kind of you know, fascination uh, all over this princess from Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first time then that we saw her was really at the wake. Was that the first time that we, and we didn't know who she was, is that right? That's uh, right. We didn't know who she was. And I believe to this date, North Korea has never publicly said that she is the sister of the supreme leader. Mm-hmm. Of course, we all know she is. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that was one um, snapshot of a grieving, you know, sorrowful woman, young woman. But when she came to South Korea, she exuded confidence. She held her chin up, Mm -hmm. erect posture. And I believe all this comes from royalty training. Mm -hmm. You know, all monarchies, royalties as children receive training, education on how to comport themselves in public to exude confidence. So when she first made her entrance into the VIP reception room at Incheon International Airport, Kim Young-nam, 90 years old at the time, uh, was the first to enter the room, but he was slightly nervous that he had entered the VIP room before the royal personage. Mm. So he looked back to see where she was, and then he smiled as she walked in. And the way she walked in was quite arresting to me. She walked in and fixed her gaze on two or three spots only, not looking around, wow, nice room, Mm. as if she's excited or nervous. No, she was the epitome of grace and confidence, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. mixed with a little bit of snobbishness as well, Mm. I think. And when she sat or seated in the reception, the VIP reception, uh, VIP box uh, for the opening ceremony later that night in the evening, I thought the seating configuration quite odd in that the host, President Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president, actually walked in and Kim Yo-jong and Kim Yong-nam were seated one row above and behind President Moon and other dignitaries. So we had this, to me, strange optic of the president of the Republic of Korea looking up and extending his arm to shake Kim Yo-jong's hand. And she smiled, put on on a nice smile, but she did not bow down. She did not extend her arm like Mm. this. Mm. She kept her elbow by her waist and nodded and smiled. Mm. And throughout the evening, she was seated not directly behind U.S. Vice President Mike Pence, but sort of. So again, the optics I found strange. Kim Yo-jong from North Korea, sort of seated, lording it over the U.S. vice president, depending on one's view. Um, And not once, of course, did the two shake hands or exchange any greetings. 
So there was visible, almost palpable chill in the very chilly uh, mm -hmm. winter uh, environment. And, you know, she, again, exuded this confidence with her chin up. It seemed to me telling the world that, hey, I'm the real draw. I'm the star here. Everyone's looking at me, viewing this now on NBC in the United States and beyond because I'm here. Maybe I overread things, mm. but watching her on TV live, uh, I was struck by her and how capable she seemed, how confident she appeared. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to talk about that um, in a minute, but just for context, of course, what, what happened was this was sort of the start of a cycle of summit diplomacy that took place in the second year of the Trump administration after the year of fire and fury. Uh, and, um, and it started with this visit by uh, Kim Yo-jong and Kim Yong-nam to the Olympics, right, to the Winter Olympics. That's right. Um, you know this well, of course. But I think Kim Jong-un used his sister, who by virtue of her identity, gender, and youth, who exudes a softer feminine glow from the very brutish, macabre, funny-looking facade that is her nation, North Korea. Uh, she is able to project, I think, that softer, kind of nicer glow. And I think that is an unprecedented development, an unprecedented weapon even in the North Korean diplomatic toolbox because she is a woman. She is more photogenic than her brother. She does not look as surly as her brother, although she's turned quite surly in recent years. So I think she carries naturally, just by showing up, by being who she is, a softer, a more agreeable message. Mm. And we want to believe her. And at the same time, due to, because of the latent sexism in many of us, I would suggest, in women as well as men, because of our innate tendency to underestimate or patronize young women, we don't take her seriously or we are more forgiving. It's easier to stomach, to swallow insults from Kim Jong-un's sister than from Kim Jong-un himself. So she plays a very important role, she did in 2018, in softening up her interlocutors, including President Trump, President Moon, President Xi as well, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And indeed, Kim Jong-un and his sister, not with his wife, Lee Sol-ju, but the two visited President Xi uh, by air, by plane, in early May, May 7th, I believe, in 2018, a month or so before Kim Jong-un's unprecedented summit meeting with the President of the United States. In Singapore, yeah. Um, so, uh, so let me just add, so how old do we think she is? I believe she was born on September 26th, 1987. Uh -huh. So she's about to turn 37. Uh-huh. Okay. And what else do 36, we 36, pardon 36. 36. And what else do we know about her background? Well, we know that she did live in Switzerland with her two brothers, mm -hmm. Kim Jong-chol and Kim Jong-un, from about 1996 to late 2000 or early 2001, about 4 years. So she was quite young at the time. But when I see North Korean videos, documentary, Kim Jong-un and Kim Yo-jong really seem to like each other. Mm. 
even during official events like the summit meeting and dinner with President Moon at Panmunjom on April 27, 2018, in between shaking hands with other people, they look at each other and there's a slight message, a slight smile, as if the day is going swimmingly. So, and also in Singapore too, in North Korean footage, Kim Jong-un, once he arrived in Singapore on the eve of his summit meeting with President Trump, he's laid back seated in his suite, hotel room, and all the senior North Korean officials are standing at attention, of course, as they're prone to, you know, scribbling down great pearls of wisdom from the great leader. But there she is. She's just walking in and out of frame yeah. with a smile, uh, sometimes like whistling too. And in other footages, you see Kim Yo-jong when her brother makes an entrance while everyone else in North Korea stand up and applaud, you know, rapturously. Sometimes she doesn't even clap. She's just standing there. Yeah. So that speaks to her unique position so in the, the hierarchy. The, yeah, it, it, speaking of, I mean, that always, what always struck me about watching her, uh, you know, in sort of the arrival ceremony for the South Korean president when he came to North Korea, or as you just described, every piece of that is choreographed to the T. And the only piece that's moving around unchoreographed at their own will is her, is yes. the sister, which is, I guess, a sign of power, right? It's, I it's, think so. Yeah, yeah, it's a sign of power. And, and um, but institutionally, what sort of, so she's obviously, you know, the younger sister of the leader. So I guess titles, um, yeah, that in itself is very powerful in North Korea. But what sort of role institutionally does she play now in the party, in the, in the, in the state? Well, the North Korean media mentioned her by name, not specifying who she was, but by name for the first time in March 2014. And a few months afterwards, I think various government intelligence agencies ascertained that she's been working in the very powerful propaganda and agitation department, which is also the route that their father, Kim Jong-il, took as a young man um, in his 30s, he also was the deputy director of the Propaganda and Agitation Department. And during those years, I noticed, as did many other North Korea watchers, a new directed, specific, racist, sexist, uh, homophobic, vile invective against important personages, important people. For example, we remember that the United Nations published a monumental study on human rights in North Korea in 2014. Mm -hmm. And of course, the re renowned retired judge, the principal author, Mike Michael Kirby, is openly gay. And North Korea referred to Judge Kirby as somebody, somebody who's had a 40-year career in homosexuality mm -hmm. and more um, nastier comments as well. Uh, North Korea kept referring to Park Geun-hye as, quote, a dirty old prostitute, um, referred to President Barack Obama as, quote, wicked monkey, and so on. So this kind of vile invective, while North Korea has repeatedly denounced South Korean presidents and former U.S. presidents as well, using words like you know, human scum and so on, this kind of, it was a new layer of nastiness, I thought. Slightly, it was a deviation from the old um, invective that North Korea has hurled against 
their adversaries. I assume that she played a role in this because although I did not know it at the time or assume, uh, make this assumption at the time, since 2020, Kim Yo-jong has issued over 40 written statements in her own name, and there is a consistent streak of nastiness. There is sort of her signature imprint in every single statement that is quite mean and vulgar. Mm. And in many of these statements, going back to your question, she asserts, she tells the world that her authority is vested in her by the comrade chairman, by the party, and by the state. She referred to that phrase for the first time in June 2020. In a statement issued on June 4th, she called on South Korea to come up with a new law criminalizing sending leaflets and anything else across the border into North Korea. A few days later, uh, in a June 13th statement, she said that she has this authority derived from her brother and the party and the state and threatened to blow up the North Korea-South Korea joint liaison office located, as we know, used to be located at least, uh, in Kaesong uh, and funded entirely with South Korean uh, government funds. And three days later, yes, it was demolished on June 16th. So she's assertive and she has shown that she has real authority, real power to pursue her nations, I suppose, to put it kindly, foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis South Korea and the United States. So yeah, she you know, is not just um, an interesting figure who's prone to throwing tantrums. She is the top policymaker, you know, next to her brother, that is. She's sort of the co-leader, the co-crime boss uh, family sister. Right, but, but most of her, like you mentioned, since 2020, 40 statements from her, most of those have been directed against the United States and South Korea, right? So they've mostly been on those sorts of issues, not on domestic issues, not on any other sorts of things, but very much sort of uh, focus on, with laser focus on the United States and South Korea. And I mean, almost like the bad cop, right? Sort of being the hard, she, so she's definitely the hardliner, or at least that's the, that's the role they want her to play. Absolutely, right? yeah. and uh, in that June 13th statement, she warned that the liaison office will soon be gone. She also warned that she would um, move troops into the border region. And then in late June, Kim Jong-un called for a meeting and said, we will suspend that plan mm. to deploy troops. Mm. Thus, coming across as the saner, more restrained, great leader. Mm -hmm. It's a very clever role reversal. Mm. Kim Yo-jong came across as quite courteous, diplomatic in Pyeongchang and in Seoul in 2018. In 2020, she assumed the role of the even worse cop to the bad cop that is her brother. Mm. And her brother seems quite content to give her this authority to have her be the mouthpiece of his government. Right, so not good cop, bad cop, but really bad cop and bad cop. Yes, right? even yeah. worse cop. Even worse cop. Does she make statements like, so we know that Kim Jong-un has made statements about the nuclear weapons program, aspirations, goals, plans. 
as laid out in um, the New Year's speeches. Has she made statements on the nuclear weapons program or no? She has she um, several times. Uh-huh. Her first was on April 3rd, 2022, referring to the then South Korean defense minister as, quote, North Korean official translation, scum-like guy. Um, why? Why was he called a scum-like guy? Because the previous day, answering a question from a reporter, the then defense minister of South Korea said, if there is an indication of an imminent nuclear-tipped missile attack from North Korea against the South, then we will try to take it out. It was a hypothetical question. But she used that opportunity, and of course, uh, President-elect Moon, uh, Yoon, pardon me, Yoon Sung-yeol had also said such things in January uh, the same year, in 2022. So she used that as a pretext to issue what she had in mind, I believe, already, which was a statement, a threat of preemptive nuclear strike on South Korea. Mm. And then just two days later, she issued another more explicit uh, statement of a preemptive nuclear strike on South Korea, saying that it will bring she will deploy her nation's nuclear forces and her nation's nuclear forces will bring something just short of utter destruction and ruin. And later in the same month, Kim Jong-un himself made another threat of nuclear, preemptive nuclear strike against South Korea. So uh, I would suggest that although she's not said it so explicitly by making these official statements, she also has her finger on the proverbial nuclear button, Mm. just as her brother does. Mm. Mm. um, I want to just switch topics a little bit and talk about um, the... um, So there's another mysterious figure in this family that has recently emerged, um, the the daughter, Jue. and um, I guess, so I would like to know first, what are your thoughts on the daughter? And what do we think is the relationship between the daughter and the auntie? First of all, um, I'll probably regret this. I believe her real name is Chu Eun, oh, not Chu E. Oh, of course, thanks to uh, the former great National Basketball, uh, National Basketball Association star, Dennis Rodman, we have this information that he held this baby in his arm and was told that her name was Chu E. Uh-huh. Uh, that could be sort of a pet name, perhaps. Uh, and my, um, the reason that I think it's more likely that it's Chu Eun is that uh, the North Korean royal family have this convention of um, using, reusing the same character mm. to name mm. their sons mm-hmm. and daughters, mm-hmm. and sometimes even um, mixing one syllable, one character from the great leader's name, and then one from the wife's name. And Kim Jong-un and Lee Sol-chu would make sense. Chu-un would make more sense. But more to the point, I really doubt that Kim Jong-un would have named his own daughter, given the name, the character E, which means love uh, in the Chinese character, because um, that character E is now outdated, it's old-fashioned, and it was in the name of one lady called Kim Sung-e, the stepmother of Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-il and his stepmother Kim Sung-e 
had a very hostile relationship. Mm-hmm. So for the son of Kim Jong-il, who detested his stepmother called Kim Sung-e, to use that character in officially in his own daughter's name, I'm somewhat skeptical. But anyway, so minor point there, pardon me. Interesting. Uh, what is Chue's yeah. role? Well, I think this is sort of great leader psychological manipulation. His casting, Kim Jong-un, is projecting a softer image on himself and his regime. It's evident that the cute-looking girl loves her daddy. They show affection uh, at a military parade in February. Kim Chu-e, let's say, um, grasped her father's face and smiling, beaming smiles. They, you know, look very affectionate, Mm -hmm. which is completely normal, of course. After all, it's his daughter and it's her father. So this family man image is very useful, I think, in North Korean propaganda. How so? Well, we across the Pacific looking at North Korea may one day come to accept North Korea as a nuclear power and even be prone to thinking, obviously, he's not going to start a nuclear war. He's a family man. He loves his daughter, his wife. So maybe we can live with a nuclear North Korea. I think North Korea is working this sort of angle of psychological manipulation by parading the cute-looking daughter out to the world. Will she be the successor? Will she inherit her kingdom? It remains to be seen. But for now, I don't see anyone outside, anyone besides Kim Yo-jong as a viable successor. Because, yes, North Korea is a male-dominated, hard, male chauvinistic society that's never seen a supreme leader who's a woman. But what supersedes these cultural political norms is that it's the Mount Pekdu bloodline, whatever. The authority legitimacy of Kim Jong-un comes from his father, who inherited the supernatural and almost omnipotent qualities by virtue of being the son of the founder, Kim Il-sung, the so-called Mount Pekdu bloodline. And there is simply no one else within the direct descendants of Kim Il-sung, besides Kim Il-jong, who is capable of governing her nation. Their older, um, Kim Il-jong's older brother, Jong Chol, has never been seen photographed next to his younger brother, Kim Jong-un, in the Kim Jong-un era, and reportedly has no interest in politics. So I think perhaps one day Kim Jong-un's daughter will inherit her kingdom, but not until she's mature enough. She's 10 or 11 or 12, still prepubescent child. And what can a 10-year-old child do? Receive a foreign delegation, lead her nation's delegation abroad, issue a statement, make a speech? Speech. I mean, nothing really. I mean, she's just a child. So there's a cruel element in parading her to all these military factories and ICBM launches. I mean, she shouldn't be seeing that, witnessing that, you know, live as a 10-year-old. But I think Kim Jong-un deems it to be in his own interest to show this softer image mm. uh, to the outside world, primarily to the United States. Mm. Mm. So Kim Il-jong is not only the sister, but in your mind, she's also potentially the successor. For the next 15 years Un- or so, if Kim Jong-un were to yeah. Yeah, exit yeah. the political stage today, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe she will 
emerge as the first female supreme leader of North Korea. And all this talk about sort of credibility, positions, um, you know, roles that she played, that, that all that myth-making, that's less important than the Pektu bloodline. The bloodline is the most important thing for basically their version of a royal family. Yeah, I mean, let me ask you a question mm-hmm. as uh, one of the world's foremost experts. If, <clears throat> if Kim Jong-un were to die, is it possible for a non-Kim like a very capable North Korean official to assume the role of the great leader. In this family dynasty, you know, family-dominated system with statues of the founder and the son everywhere, I mean, that new guy, new person, whether his name Kim or Park or Lee, and there are only three, you know, last names in North Korea, just kidding, um, (laughs) he will have a monumental, really hard task of sort of you know, tilting away from this cult of the Kim family, it will be very weird and an arduous undertaking. So, yes, a female supreme leader will be very strange. It will take time to adjust to that, but not nearly as strange as a Mr. Park now saying he is the fourth gen- fourth um, leader, the great leader of North Korea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree with that. I think that's right. Um, um, so uh, the last question I wanted to ask you is that, um, so this is a book arguably about uh, not just one of the most opaque states in the world, not just one of the most opaque leaders in the world, but even more opaque than the state and the leader is the sister. So how, so how did you go about writing this book? What, what are the, you know, what's the, materi- what's the material that you use? Like, how did you do the research for this? Well, <clears throat> she was very helpful in making over 40 statements, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but with great difficulty. Mm. Research on North Korea is always challenging, of course, because it's very hard to confirm, to establish facts when it comes to North Korean studies, of course. Um, I had a lot of help. I had several excellent graduate students, research assistants, who scoured through every reference to Kim Il-jong, Kim Jong-un, and other <coughs> important people uh, in Chinese on the mainland, mm-hmm. as well as in Taiwan, two different research um, students, assistants. Um, I've looked at every single North Korean reference to Kim Il-jong, and most likely Kim Jong-un as well, and um, some of that was quite helpful. I've watched literally hundreds of hours of North Korean videos, which was also helpful. Um, and I've spoken with, interviewed with a few people who have met Kim Yo-jong, like Dog Band, for example, a very close aide to mm, President, President Clinton. Bill Clinton. Yep. They flew together to Pyongyang to rescue, uh, to um, take the two detainees, young female journalists, mm. yeah. In 2009. Yeah. Laura Ling and Yuna Lee. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Doug Band uh, played a role in making that trip, preparing for the trip. He asked Steve Bing, the Hollywood mogul, to lend them the the, his personal right. plane. Right. And he brought with him, he told me, Doug Band told me, um, $100,000 in cash, just in case, hmm. which proved very useful because North Korea demanded airport use fee of $98,700 or something <laughs> like that. So Doc Ban just gave away his duffel bag, you know, full of 
$100,000 in cash. But Mr. Band told me when the plane touched down at the North Korean airport with, on a hot, sunny day, it was early August 2009, Kim Yo-jung was there, mm. a young Kim Yo-jung. <clears throat> in 2009, she was barely 22 at the time, not quite 22. And she completely ignored the far more popular or, you know, recognizable, famous figure, President Clinton, completely ignored him, came straight to Doug Band, mm. knowing that, you know, he was sort of the, the chief planner, chief aide, and said, I want the letter in English. Oh. And Doug Band said, well, not yet. We first need to see the detainees, see that they're healthy and okay. She said again, the letter. And Doug Band stood his ground and said, please let us see the detainees. What letter was this supposed to be? A letter of thanks from President Obama. Apparently that President Obama had promised uh, Kim Jong-il. Mm. <clears throat> there was no such letter in the end. Mm. But, you know, that was, I guess, not entirely disagreeable to Kim Jong-il. So, um, you know, here's a snippet, a vignette of a young Kim Yo-jong already in her early 20s being a close aide to her father. And at the dinner banquet, she was the manager, event planner. Mm. Now, she was giving directions, um, and uh, she did not sit with Clinton and Kim Jong-il, but she was among the people in the dining room at the banquet, which, you know, which uh, was... <clears throat> which had, uh, according to Doc Band, uh, Premier Grand Cru, Chateau Latour. I hear it's very expensive and very refined wine and the best marbled steak he's ever had and so on. <laughs> and I've also spoken with other people um, who've met Kim Yo-jong, for example, um, Fred Warmbier, the father of Otto Warmbier, who was on officially on the Mike Pence delegation for the opening ceremony mm -hmm. of the Winter mm -hmm. Olympics. So, uh, and I've interviewed some um, formerly senior North Korean officials as well. So, you know, I've had a lot of help along the way in trying to put together a, a mosaic to this mysterious figure. But I readily admit there are, you know, limitations. Yeah, no, really fascinating. I, I know we have to end, but you, you, you raised one thing. And one other question I'd like to ask you, you know, very briefly is, um, you mentioned that you had researched also Chinese sources for this. What are the how did the Chinese write about Kim Yo Jong? <clears throat> the Chinese got her name wrong as well. Uh. State media, uh. as we all did res with respect to Kim Jong Un's name. You remember, uh -huh. the South Korean government kept saying his name as of two thousand nine that it's Kim Jong Un, yeah, not Un. Un, yeah. So no one knew of his real name besides a, a few people, maybe Kenji Fujimoto, the family Japanese chef, um, besides a few people like that at the time. So until North Korea told us, until 2014, again, when her name was mentioned for the first time, we didn't even know her real name. Um, the Chinese referred to her um, without much prejudice for or against, but I think China at the time probably knew more about the family than most other governments, and perhaps that's true now too. Mm. So she was featured, she was reported on in the Chinese state media on the occasion of an, the opening of the Lungna Amusement Park in Pyongyang, which was 
um, in July 2012, I believe. And there's a video footage of her. She's in the frame, and you see Kim Jong-un with his wife, whose name had not been mentioned yet. It would be mentioned a few days later at a concert. And Chang Song-tek, the uncle who was condemned and killed in 2013, uh, and his wife, Kim Kyung-hee, the sister of Kim Yo-jong's father, Kim mm-hmm. Jong-il, they're all standing at attention. It's a serious ceremony, you know, Korean style, like all rigid and standing at attention. She's doing her thing. Mm. She's laughing by herself, skipping, hopping over a flower bed. And then she realizes she's in the frame, so she smiles, actually laughs, and skips away. But they show that. Mm. Why? Because she was in charge of the propaganda and agitation department. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Really fascinating stuff, um, Sung-yun. Um, congratulations on the book. Um, I'm sure it'll be a big, uh, it'll be a big seller. And uh, really appreciate the time that you spent with us here on The Impossible State to talk to our viewers and listeners about the sister, North Korea's Kim Yo-jong, the most dangerous woman in the world. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, thank you for joining us on another episode of The Impossible State. Uh, please stay tuned and stay with us as we continue to uh, understand and investigate more aspects of North Korea and the Korean Peninsula. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.